0: All right, many of you guys who have been here the past few weeks, you know where we've been. Uh, if you have not, we have just finished up a series on Jesus. Uh, we spent several weeks walking through the work of Jesus, the work of Christ. Uh, many of you also know that next week we're going to start a church-wide series, and we'll be in this for several weeks on the Great Commission, and we'll be unpacking that of what it looks like from the Scriptures and what it means for this church, and we'll enter into a season where we focus on that for several weeks. So that's just a heads-up of what's coming at us. Today we're going to do a standalone message out of Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 19 through 25. Uh, I believe this this passage, if we unpack it and allow the Lord to teach it to us, I believe this passage speaks uh, directly to what our responsibilities are as a member in the church of Jesus, in Jesus' body. Uh, It's going to unpack some of that for us, and you'll see that as we as we walk through it. I want to give you a heads up on the front end that there's a lot uh, there's a lot of doctrine, there's a lot of truth. Um, in Hebrews period, uh, there's a lot packed into a little, almost every uh, where you turn in the book of Hebrews. So I want you just to be, be aware of that, that, that we are in a passage that you're going to have to just use a little bit of, uh, pay more careful attention to as we're going through this together. It's easy to lose the focus And what I want to do is I want to unpack this, and and there's going to emerge what I believe is a main point, a main message, a main thrust. And I want you to see that for yourself. I want you to see that for yourself from the Word of God. Um, I would encourage you uh, to take notes during this time. Uh, One of the reasons why you have a piece of paper in your chair every week is because the Word of God calls me and Ryan to do this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So there, there's there's supposed to be some encouragement that happens during this time, some some uh, exhortations, some rebuke, some warning, but you're supposed to come away from these gatherings equipped to do something, to minister for Christ. And so I want you to just kind of be mindful of that as we're unpacking these things. You take your notes. You do whatever you need to do to get Hebrews driven into your soul uh, specifically to that Hebrews chapter 10. So I want to encourage you that think think like that from the front end and go into it that I'm listening as a reproducer, not just a consumer. I am taking in the Word of God. I'm sifting it. I'm not just giving, I'm just not repeating what Dustin says. I'm sifting it. I'm discerning it. And then I'm reproducing the Word of God. Uh, so I want you to think like that every time you hear a sermon here. And that's why you have a piece of paper in your chair almost every week. It's a heart behind, uh, heart behind that. Um, we're going to read uh, Hebrews in a second, but I want to read one verse earlier from Hebrews first. I want to remind us that this passage, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, is living. Is part of the living and active Word of God. Okay? It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay? It pierces to the division of soul and spirit. This passage does. This is the Word of God, living and active Word of God. So I want to remind you of that. And, and we, because it is the Word of God, we can go into this passage expecting that the living God will speak to us, that He will take His sharp sword and pierce our souls with His truth. And we can go into asking God to do this. This is the living and active Word of God. And may it expose our deepest thoughts and the deepest intentions of our heart as we unpack its truth. So please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we will read verses 19 through 25 together. Says this: Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great High Priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, Lord. God, we want to hear you speak to us. God, we want to know you more and more. And, and Lord, we know that you, sh- that you reveal who you are through your word. And we ask that you would do that, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would unveil Your Word to us, God. That You would drive it in our souls, Lord. That You would make us understand it. That You would make it burn in our hearts, God. That You would cause it to be a delight to us, Lord. God, I confess for myself and for everybody here that unless You help us, God, nothing can be accomplished during this time. But You are a mighty God. And You are our Father in Heaven. And You have given us new covenant promises, Lord. You will never leave us or forsake us. So we come to you, Lord, in faith, God, in hope. And we ask, Lord, that you would, you would cause us to be edified. Lord, bury this truth into our hearts, Lord, and bring about Christ-likeness in this church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we're going to begin our study of Hebrews 10, 19-25. Uh, to 25, And I'm going to labor here at the very beginning in an introduction. Uh, I'm going to labor to set this passage in its context, uh, probably more so than normal. I'm not about to give you an overview of Hebrews, okay? But I, what I want what I want you to know is that uh, the the easiest way a passage of scripture is misinterpreted is to remove it from its context from which it flows. That's the easiest way to misinterpret the Bible. You need to know that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in and just unpack a little bit of the context around the passage that we're in uh, today, so you can see the flow. And all these arguments and all these themes and this logic, it flows through to main points. And I want you to see this. The Holy Spirit wrote a book. And I want you to understand it. I want you to understand Hebrews 10. Uh, When we come to verse 19, you will see the word, first word you'll come to is the word therefore. Okay? Now this is an old preacher joke. And many of you have heard this very many times. That any time you see a word therefore, you need to find out what the word therefore is therefore and that's the joke you know you, many of you have heard that but that is solid that is solid uh, the word therefore is there for a reason and these are connector words in the New Testament and what I mean by a connector word is you'll have a thought and then the Word of God will give you a therefore based off this thought this is true or do this and you need to know what the therefores are there for so we're gonna unpack the therefore in verse 19 of Hebrews 10 And what we're going to do is we're going to go back and we're going to grab some passages of Scripture earlier in Hebrews 10. Now, I want to just encourage you with something. Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 is one of the most compact, rich uh, places in the Bible where you have so much that unpacks what the death of Jesus accomplished. So if you were to ever immerse yourself into a passage of Scripture, Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 would be a great place to do it of to understand what happens behind the narrative of Christ's death, of what's actually going on when Jesus dies on the cross. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, and let's start um, unpacking this argument that precedes our passage for today. And let's start in verse 4. says this. That, uh, let me say this. Before I read this, the main argument okay, is that he is the writer of Hebrews is laboring to, to drive this point home. Jesus is better than than Old Testament sacrifices. And that's the argument that he's driving home in Hebrews 10. So let's pick this up in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Pick it up again in verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Pick it up again in verse 14. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. This is the covenant. That I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is no forgiveness, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Okay, so this is what precedes the therefore. Okay, and the plain sense of what we just read is this that you have been, the Old Testament sacrificial system was incomplete. Okay? Every sacrifice in the Old Testament was pointing to the once for all sacrifice for Jesus. Therefore, the Old Testament sacrificial system was temporary. Okay? And Jesus came to do God's will. And God's will was that He dies an atoning sacrifice for sin. And because Jesus did God's will, you have the following according to Hebrews chapter 10. This is for every single Christian. You are perfected. Forever, that's Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14. Every single Christian. You have a legal status of a saint, which means a holy one. That's Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10. You have received a new covenant from God. This is Hebrews chapter 10 verse 16. And the law of God has been written in your mind. This is Hebrews chapter 10 verse 16. There is no remembrance of your sin. That's verse 17. And you have been completely forgiven by God. That's verse 18. You have these things in Jesus, these things in Jesus, these things in Jesus. Therefore, okay, that's what the therefore is unpacking in your mind. Because these things are true, because Christ has done this, because you have these things, therefore. And we're about to swing on that word uh, on the basis of what Jesus accomplished. We come immediately to this word, therefore. Okay, and this therefore, it swings us into a new section in the book of Hebrews. Now, if you're a student of the New Testament, uh, there's a couple places where this is really clear. It happens really clear in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It happens really clear in the book of Ephesians at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, but it also happens here in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. There's a pivot passage and a hinge section where you have doctrine, 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 and you swing into a new thought. Therefore, do something. And we're right there in the Word of God. This is where we're headed. Uh, for the most part, for the past few chapters, the writer of Hebrews has been unpacking doctrines about Jesus. This is who Jesus is, this is what He did. This is who He is, and this is what He did. Here, we're going to swing into duties. Therefore, based on what Jesus did, do this. Okay. Now, uh, this doesn't catch many of you off guard. Many of you have seen the passage in Romans and the passage in Ephesians, and you've been blessed by that. Uh, this is going from the doctrinal to the practical. Okay? A fancy way to say this is from the indicative to the imperative. And a simple way to say it, which is my favorite way to say it, is going from the duns of the New Testament to the do's. Done, do. And that word, therefore, almost always swings us from one of those to the other. Alright, this is a beautiful principle in the New Testament. This is how the apostles sought to bring about obedience to Jesus. This is the only way to bring about obedience to Jesus that is rooted in the finished work of Christ. Okay, so a good way to think about it, this is gospel obedience. And there is another flavor and another kind, but this is gospel obedience. The one rooted in the finished work of Jesus. The do's that are rooted in the done's in the New Testament. This is a powerful principle. If you had never thought much about this, this will change your life. Okay, That everything that I do for the Lord is rooted in what He's done for me in Christ. This is powerful. Okay, And we're right in the middle of one of these right now. Uh, Let's talk real quick about the structure of this passage. Uh, You'll have this on your outline. I just want to throw this at you real quick. Uh, The therefore in verse 19 swings us into a new section. And from verse 19 to verse 21, you'll have more review of, of your gospel blessings in Christ. And then from verse 22 to 24, we'll walk into three commands. Based off of what you have in Jesus, you'll walk in three commands, and they're highlighted by the word let us. And you'll see let us in verse 22, let us in verse 23. And let us, in verse 24, and they go like this, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. And then that last, uh, we'll have some closing thoughts in that last verse of 25. So that's the structure of the passage. Done, do. Okay? You need to know these things. These things are beautiful. Uh, They unpack and glorify Jesus for what He's done. Okay. That was your introduction. Now we're going to start unpacking that first section. Uh, this is verse 19 through 21, and it reads like this. Read this with me. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, that, uh, through, his, through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God... Alright, here's where I want you to uh, buckle up tight and just think really hard as we're doing this. Look at the Word of God... And think about it. And look at it again and think about it some more. And say, Holy Spirit, reveal your truth to me. And then think about it some more. Okay? I want you to think about these things. These verses are basically a summary review of the last few chapters of Hebrews. Alright? To understand this section well, it helps you to understand the book of Hebrews well. This is a big key to understanding the book of Hebrews, this passage. The writer of Hebrews has been laboring... For several chapters to show these Christians that in Christ we have basically these two categories, these two things. And what are they? Alright? And you see them in my translation, since we have. Since we have. You have two things. And here they are. They are since we have confidence to enter the holy place. That's one. Verse 19. And then verse 21, you see the second. Since we have a great priest over the house of God again they are both massive themes in Hebrews access to God and a great high priest these are massive things in the book of Hebrews and I want to tell you that these blessings are given to every single believer in Jesus if you've never known that you had these things you've had them since the moment you trusted Christ and they've never departed from you okay? these are gospel blessings All right, I, w- I want to give you a word to think about uh, when you think about gospel blessings okay? it's the word objective alright now, let me just give you what the dictionary definition of the word objective means. Because you might be like me, I'm from Pearl, I need all the help I can get at any time. Okay? The word objective, and this word is going to help you understand your blessings in Jesus. Okay? The word objective, according to the dictionary, dictionary, means facts not influenced by feelings or emotions. Okay? So I'm telling you that the finished work of Christ and the things that we just read about, this confidence that you have to enter the holy place and this great high priest, you should think about those as a Christian as objective facts, not feelings or emotions or experiences. Okay? They are disconnected from your experience. They are disconnected from your feelings. Your feelings can float like a ship in a hurricane. These things are solid. They are an anchor. They never change. Okay, Objective. You need to know these things. Um, objective truth is completely outside of us, so let's unpack this first gospel blessing in verse 19. And we said it was, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, it may help you to understand this passage if we do just a little bit of rewording, and I want to tell you what I mean. If this passage is objective, and it is, okay, then I want, to, I want, I want you to think about something. We have a command in verse 22. This, this verse says, confidence to enter. And then we have a command in verse 22 that says, draw near. Okay? And what I want you to see is that the way that this is laid out in the book of Hebrews, in verse 19, this confidence is actually not a feeling. Okay? This isn't an objective truth that you have in Jesus. Okay? Now, Because of that reason, we tend to associate the the word of God, it's it's a promise here to be claimed by every believer. But we tend to associate that word with a feeling. So I think it might be real helpful to you if we reworded that verse, and this is perfectly legitimate translation. Okay, if we reworded that verse, uh, since we have been authorized to enter the holy place. Okay, since we have been authorized. And what I want to get your mind around, this verse is not about feeling confident. It's about access to God. There's a legal right that's been given in Jesus that you have access to God. Okay, And this is the first blessing that we come to. That is yours. You have access. The, what, the door has been opened for you. You have access in Jesus. Uh, holy place here is literally the holiest. And many of you know this. This is a reference to the holy of holies. We have access been authorized to enter the holy of holies. This is none other than this is none other than the holy presence of God. Okay? So I want you to think about this. That verse and the word of God teaches that sinners, because of what Jesus has done, can enter into the holy presence of God. They've been authorized, something has happened. We can approach the holy, holy, holy one. Okay? This is powerful. This is weighty. We have access. Okay, I want you. I want to read just a, a verse out of Isaiah thirty-three. This is Isaiah thirty-three, verse fourteen. How can a sinner, how can a sinner, access and approach a holy, holy, holy God? And here's a vivid verse to drive that point home. Isaiah thirty-three, verse fourteen, says this: The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And that's the flavor of the Word of God you get in man and his sinfulness. There is no chance that we can approach God. No chance. But the Word of God teaches that something ha- has happened. And that we have been authorized. We have access to God. How? Go to the next phrase. By the blood of Jesus. We have access to God by the blood of of Jesus. This is a reference to the bloody death of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins as the Lamb of God, okay? By the blood of Christ. This is Romans chapter 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from Him by the wrath of God. Now having been justified by Jesus' blood, we can enter and have access to God Himself. And this is the first blessing. Uh, verse 20 unpacks this same truth even more. It's by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And this further explains the access that you have to God. This ac- access is it's all about Jesus. Everything here is unpacking what Jesus has done. Okay? Not what you muster up for yourself. Your access to God is all about Jesus. He made a way to the Father for us. It's specifically a new and living way. Look at that in verse 20. A new and living way. How is this way new? How is the way that Jesus made for us new? And to unpack that, you need to know that the book of Hebrews, it is rich with Old Testament themes. Okay, and here it draws you to the Old Testament Day of Atonement. Now, we talked about that several weeks ago here in Leviticus 16. Okay. So the way that it's new here is that it's new because it contrasts with the old, okay? Under the old covenant and the day of atonement, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. This is not new news to hardly any of you here. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and he could only do it once a year. Once a year, one dude, and that's it, okay? And this way is new because the door swings open in every single follower of Christ Every single person has believed the gospel, Access flung wide open to the holy of holies. And this is how it's a new way. It's also a living way. How is this way living? I want you to think about this. In Leviticus 16, verse 2, the high priest, as he approached God, he was given vivid, very detailed instructions of how to go about when he drew near to God on the day of atonement. And Leviticus 16, verse 2 says, lest he die. Okay? So God, in all His, his majestic holiness, if, if, if things were out of whack, this guy would draw near to God and God he would slaughter him. He would be slain in the presence of God. Okay. And this is the living way. Okay. That's how the high priest in the, under the old covenant approached the Holy of Holies. But this says that we can approach the Holy of Holies with confidence. We've been authorized by God. The door is swung wide open based on what Jesus has done. So it is a living way. It is the new and living way. Uh, he opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. That's also in verse 20. Think about this. This phrase is also rich in Old Testament imagery. Holy of holies. Only way into it was to go through this curtain, this veil, into the holy of holies. Okay? And, and verse 20 tells us the way that Jesus opened for us was through the curtain. Through His flesh. That is through His flesh. So I want you to know this. This This is rich. This glorifies Jesus. The Word of God exalts that the only way into the Holy of Holies is through the curtain. God didn't take away the curtain. You go through the curtain. And what's the curtain? All the curtain is is a shadow that points to the body of Jesus. And the curtain being torn is a shadow to point you to the ripped, broken body of Christ. And the only way into the Holy of Holies is through the curtain. That is through His flesh. This is a reminder for us that there's no way for us to approach God apart from the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. This glorifies the Lord. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the way that He's open for us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter two, verse eighteen. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. First Peter three, eighteen. We talk about it all the time. Let's let's hit it again. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. This is the first blessing of the gospel, and we have a legal right into the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. This is your spiritual birthright. Don't care how you feel when you woke up in the morning. The Word of God says that in Christ Jesus, you have access. These things never change. I told you, they were objective. They're not tied to your feelings. We have access to Christ. All right, listen to this. This is a quote from Arthur Pink. The highest privilege of fallen man is access into the presence of God. I like that quote. I want you to think back to uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam sinned. And what happened? Adam sinned and there was a curse. And then what happened? Genesis 3 verse 24 uh, recounts Adam was cursed and he was drove away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, And the door was bolted shut behind him and God sent an angel a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way to his presence, and man no longer had access to the presence of God. Okay, This is what Adam lost when he sinned and rebelled against God. And then in the Old Covenant, we know that God graciously revealed himself to Israel, and he set a law in place and a covenant in place where men could draw near to him, but it was limited. We've already said this, only one man could draw near, and he could only draw near once a year. But here we have the new covenant. Access to God. Every single believer. Any moment of the day you have a legal right to be here. And I want to read this quote again. If this is true, this is huge. The highest privilege of fallen man is access into the presence of God. The highest privilege of fallen man. All right. so let's unpack that second blessing in verse 21. And we'll do this a little quicker. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, I want you to know that in Hebrews, the role of Jesus as a high priest or a great priest, depending on your translation, it is the main message of Hebrews, and you get that in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Okay? The main thrust that you need to take away about Christ from Hebrews is he's a high priest. Okay? But I want to I tell you that there's a two twofold meaning to Jesus' priesthood in Hebrews. Say, so what are you talking about? Alright? The first category has to do with his once for all sacrifice for sin. Okay? So his in his priesthood in that first category it points you to Jesus Jesus was the sacrifice and he was the priest who offered it. Okay? There was a once for all sacrifice and Jesus was the sacrifice but he was also the priest who offered it. And you see this category of Jesus' priesthood in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 27. The second category of His priesthood is a reference to His intercessory ministry for believers. Okay, you can see this category of His priesthood in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And so when we say Jesus is our high priest, we mean both of those things. We mean He's the one that offered the sacrifice and we mean He is the one that ever lives to make intercession for us. We mean both of those things. Okay? As we come to verse 21, this second gospel blessing in verse 21, I believe that the first gospel blessing is a reference to the first category of Jesus' priesthood. Access to God based on His sacrifice. And I believe this second one, you have a great high priest over the house of God is a reference to His second category of a high priestly ministry. A high priestly ministry. He makes intercession for us. Okay. So you have access to God, and you have this great priest. And the Word of God teaches. Remember, this is objective. Okay? You can feel 500 miles away from this as a believer, but the Word of God teaches that you have a high priest that never stops interceding for you. Let's look at this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Always. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? So we have access to God and we have this person, Christ Jesus, and He never stops going to the Father on our behalf. Okay? And the writer of Hebrews is reminding you of these things, these objective gospel truths. And I want to ask you, how awesome of a thought are these things? Do these things rock your soul? Do they drive into your heart? Do they make you stagger back and say, Lord, Praise you for what you've done, Lord. Do they do that in your heart? All right, this finishes the gospel sections, uh, the, the section on the gospel blessings. One more time, I want to remind everybody here about this objective thought. These things are objective, they are not tied to your experience. Many of you know, many of you know that your experience can fly all over the map, these things never change. These things never change. You always have access to God based on what Jesus has done, and you always have a great high priest who never stops praying for us. Always. These are gifts given to you by God. Alright, at this point, we'll turn the corner into the practical commands, and you can see those fly off. Let us, let us, let us. Okay? So, since we have, since we have, let us. And in verse 22, we'll find the first commandment. Let's read it. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we're going to camp out here. This is an awesome this is an awesome thing. Okay? And we're going to unpack this together. All right? And I submit to you just let 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 lights go off in your head. I think this is the main drive and thrust of this passage. Let us draw near And the first question we want to answer is draw near to what? Okay? And I want to answer that question. It's it's, it's clear here that we draw near to God. Okay? John Piper refers to drawing near as the main command, the the main imperative in the book of Hebrews. All right? Draw near is used seven times in the book, and we're commanded to draw near, draw near, draw near. All right? So I want you to think about that. The therefore clause uh, that we've already talked about in the two since clauses, they fall on this and they terminate in this command. Therefore, since we have, since we have, draw near to God. Since you have access and since you have a great high priest, draw near to God. Okay? And we talked about, uh, we talked about the first blessings, the ones we just unpacked being objective. And we're no longer in that place anymore. Okay, and I want to see you had I, I want to. Sh- I want to show you how this transition happens. Uh, the main reason we draw near to God. The idea here is to worship Him, to enjoy Him. All right. Now we move into the subjective area of the Christian life. Objective was a fact apart from feelings. Okay, and and some of you need to drive that in your soul. Okay, and then some of you right behind them need to drive it in your soul. That feelings are a part of the Christian life. Okay. They don't drive us, they don't boss us around, but they're part of it. Okay? Our experience is part of what God has provided for us. Based off these objective facts and what Jesus has accomplished, draw near to God. All right, the, the Puritans used to refer to this idea of nearness with God as communion with God. Maybe you've heard that term before. Which means a conscious awareness of the presence of God. Conscious communication with the Person of God, the Living God, they made a they made a point to always stress that communion with God was necessarily preceded by union with Christ. Okay, and they were getting at the same thing that Hebrews ten did. Something objective has to happen for us to move into this experience with the Lord. Access had to be granted, and on the basis of that objective truth, we draw near to God. I want you to see that. I did these gospel facts driving us into a deep enjoyment of the gospel. You see that here. And and re- real simple, let's let's just simplify this. We have access to God. Fact. We have access to God in Jesus. That's a fact. Therefore, draw near to God. That's an experience. That's a daily experience to be enjoyed by you. That one can float all over the map. Access to God never can. And the Word of God is commanding us here, since we have this objective truth, access, we draw near to God. I might be hammering that a little much, but I want you to see that. All right, consider that this command to draw near to God is given for a reason in Hebrews. It's not just throwing darts at a board or shotgun approach. He's writing them this commandment for a reason. It was needed. Okay? It, there was a reminder that was needed to a group of Christians that they needed to draw near to God. Apparently, some had lost their intimacy with Jesus and it was throwing all kind of stuff out of whack. Okay? I want, I want to throw this in your mind about the book of Hebrews. I believe that here we find the real problem with the people that he keeps warning over and over again is not external persecution but an internal lack of closeness with the Lord. Okay? And they began to drift away. Okay? And then when the persecution came, it, it, it was like a straw that broke the camel's back. So I want to throw that in your mind. The main problem here was a group of people began to uh, lose their intimacy with Christ. Uh, they needed to learn to draw near to God based off the finished work of Jesus, and we do too. Draw near to God make full use of the objective access that we have been provided in Christ. Okay? And I'm going to say this two times because I, I want to underline this. Anything less than drawing near to God in your daily experience dishonors the work of Jesus. Okay? Anything less than drawing near to God in your daily experience dishonors the work of Jesus. It's a big deal. All believers have this access Yet we must know we have this access in order to experience it. And here God calls us to a life of worship in His holy presence. And you think about this. What can we render to the one who paid everything? The one who opened the way. What can we render to Him? We can draw near to Him and bow down and worship and give Him praise. Okay? We have an unspeakable obligation to never neglect this highest privilege. It costs Jesus everything. And we have an unspeakable obligation to go into the way, into the path, and enter into the place that He opened for us. Anything less than this dishonors Jesus. The draw near here is a Greek verb in the present tense and continual action. This is supposed to be the practice of your life of drawing near to God. Daily, day by day in His presence. It draws a vivid picture here of our whole lives lived in the presence of God. The reformers used to refer to this term as Coram Deo. Maybe you've heard that before. Coram Deo is what they called it. And the, and the idea there is they lived their whole life before the presence or before the face of God. Life lived before the face of God. Listen to this R.C. Sproul quote. To live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God and to the glory of God Himself. And I want us to see here that drawing near to God is more than a doctrine to understand. It's, it is a lifestyle to be enjoyed. Okay, Drawing near to God. This is an experience that Jesus has purchased for you. Drawing near is mainly a spiritual act, not a physical one. And we draw near in a spiritual sense, which brings us to the next phrase. With a true heart. In full assurance of faith. That's verse 22. The act of drawing near to God is mainly heart work. With a true heart. It's mainly heart work. Proverbs 23, 26 says this, My son, give me your heart. I want you to picture the Father saying that to you in the secret place. My son, give me your heart. That's Proverbs 23, verse 26. This is what God requires of us. What kind of heart does God require of us? And we see in verse 22 that He requires a true heart. What is a true heart? A true heart here describes a heart that rests in and relies on Jesus Christ. It is the opposite of the heart described in Hebrews 3.12 as an evil, unbelieving heart. What makes a heart evil? Unbelief. Okay. What's it calling us here? A true heart is a heart full of faith. A true heart in fullness of faith. Uh, Full assurance of faith. Literally means fullness of faith. Okay, So as you draw near to God, you have to exercise faith. I want you to consider this. As you think about this, true heart, drawing into the presence of God, you're flooding your mind with the finished work of Jesus, the access that you have. I want you to think about the only thing that can keep you from God's presence every day. Every day of your life. If you were to root it down to one thing. And I want to submit to you that the only thing that can keep you from God's presence is unbelief. That you do not believe Jesus. You do not believe the gospel. And I want to unpack that for a minute. God calls us to draw near to Him with a fullness of faith. The heart of faith allows us to draw near to God's presence with a confidence That's verse 19. A holy boldness, even crying out, Abba, Father, to the Holy One of heaven. Okay? These things are, this is an act of faith. This is seeing what you have in Jesus, grabbing a hold of it. Any confidence to approach God, apart from what Christ has done, God hates it. It dishonors Jesus. Okay? So when we talk about a holy boldness, we mean in the gospel. We mean in the gospel. In verse 22, finishes up with this phrase, "...with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In order for the heart to approach God with fullness of faith, these things have to happen. The heart has to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience." Now I want you to think about this. A conscience is a gift from God. Okay? Don't think about your conscience as a bad thing. When you sin, one of the things that gets pricked is your conscience. But I want you to know here that, in, that the Word of God says there's such thing as an evil conscience. What is an evil conscience? An evil conscience is one that condemns you of sin that has been canceled by Jesus Christ. Okay? It is a condemning voice. It's an interminion that you sin and it reminds you of sin even after it's been canceled. Okay? And your heart must be sprinkled clean from this evil conscience. How in the world do you sprinkle your heart clean from an evil conscience, and the only way is through the blood of Jesus. You apply the blood of Jesus. Okay? This is an act of faith. I don't mean literally. It's an act of faith that you bring the gospel to bear on your conscience. The only way to shut the inner voice up that condemns you of sin, that would bid you out from the presence of God, the only way to stop that voice is to preach the gospel to yourself. That's the only way to do it. Okay? The only way to kill that evil conscience is to preach the gospel to yourself. Then we have a reference to our bodies washed with pure water. Reminding us that we are clean because of what Jesus has done. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 says this, You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christ has overcome every single obstacle. Christ has overcome every single obstacle that would hinder us from drawing near to God. Think about that. Just think about what we covered Legal. We have a legal right. We were prohibited from entering God's presence. He overcame that obstacle. And now we have a legal right. We have a great priest who constantly intercedes for us to overcome our weaknesses and our sinfulness. Okay? We have inner corruption and inner guilt and Jesus washes it clean by His blood. He stomps our conscience. And we have outer pollution, internal and external things that keep us. We feel dirty and Jesus takes care of it all. Okay, he is he has put away everything that would hinder you from drawing near to God. He's done this for us in verse. Uh, the only so I want to read this quote again. This is a Spurgeon quote. Got to throw one in there. The only thing that can keep Christians from drawing near in God's holy presence is unbelief. The only thing that can keep Christians from drawing near in God's holy presence is unbelief. So you test that for yourselves. Verse 23, we come to the second command. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The confession here is to your faith in Jesus. Your faith in what Christ has done in His gospel. And we see this in First Timothy 6.12. Listen to this. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We are commanded here to hold fast our faith in Jesus. And we have a reference here in this passage to the doctrine of perseverance in the Christian life. And I want to be real honest honest with you that I prefer the term the preservation of the saints. Okay, And I'll unpack that in a second. But this calls us to hold fast to our faith. We have to persevere in our faith. Hebrews 2 Chapter uh, Hebrews 2 verse 1 teaches us that we must, we must pay close attention to the things of Jesus lest we drift from them. We must pay close attention to the things of Jesus unless we drift from them. And I want to give you a warning here. Okay? We, have, we have a command and it basically says this. You must continue to believe in Jesus. Okay? Hold fast your confession. And that is the commandment here. We don't have to call it something else. It is that. You have to continue to believe. Okay? But I want to give you a warning. And here's the warning do not ever in your life turn faith into a work. Okay? What are you talking about? Those are the opposite of each other. Exactly. But I want you to know that you can turn faith into a work. Okay? And what does that look like? It means you see something like this. I gotta believe, and you and you say, "Oh, I gotta hold fast to my faith in Jesus." And you go into this internal uh, introspective, and you just you're agonizing. I gotta believe. I gotta believe. I gotta believe. Okay, and I want to tell you, you've just turned faith into a work. You're making it about yourself. You're looking to yourself, but faith looks to Christ alone. Okay, you're looking to yourself when you turn faith into a work, but faith looks to Christ alone. Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. And my my point here is stop focusing on your faith and focus on Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Okay? How do you hold fast the confession? You don't look at yourself, you look to Jesus. Faith rests in a person. The only object of faith is Christ Himself. Don't ever turn faith into a work. How can you be sure that that you will continue to believe in Jesus? Listen to this. Verse 23 ends with this phrase. For He who promised is faithful. So, I want you to see this. Hold fast your confession. And you're thinking, okay, I got to do this, got to do this, and that it ends the same sentence with he who promised is faithful. Verse 23 anchors your assurance, not in your faith, but in God's faithfulness. Do you see that? You will wake up a Christian tomorrow, not because of your ability to believe, because God is faithful. You understand this? We have a great high priest, our assurance is bound up in the faithfulness of God. So I want to encourage you to stop looking at your faith and look to Christ. Get your eyes on your high priest who never changes. Uh, let me just say this. That objective, subjective thing, you do know that that works with security and assurance, right? Surely you know that as a believer. That your security in Christ is objective. It is a, it is a spiritual fact completely removed from any feelings that you'll ever have. Your assurance can float all over the map. But you are secure in Jesus. Okay? And the only way to have assurance is to look to Jesus. Okay? The only way to have assurance in your daily experience is to look to Christ. To get your eyes off yourself and on your great high priest. Alright, the first two commands have been vertical towards God Himself. And here we move to the last one and it's horizontal. In verse 24, it says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The word consider here is only used one other time in Hebrews, in Hebrews 3.1. And it's used to describe consider Jesus. Okay, But in Hebrews chapter 10, we're to consider one another. And that word consider is actually a really strong word. It has some synonyms that means something like this. It means to direct our minds toward. It means to ponder, to reflect, to expend mental energy, to take a loving interest in. To think intently, intently about other people. Christians are to be people studiers. That was a John Piper quote. You're to be a people studier. We are to study people with the end goal that what? That they be stirred up and motivated to love and good works. Consider one another in order to stir them up to love and good works. We need to know what makes other people tick in the body. You don't need to be just flying shotgun approaches. You need to consider how to stir up your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Okay? Now, in order to consider how to stir up others, this means that you have got to stop thinking about yourself all the time. Okay, That your mind is flooded with thoughts about other people. Lord Jesus, how can I help them love you more? How can I help them lay down their lives and live for your glory? You see how that works? Our focus has got to be on ourselves and on the body, on other people. The word stir up should remind us that our speech and our actions when we when we're around other Christians should be provocative. They should actually motivate the way we carry ourselves and speak to other Christians should actually motivate people to want to be more like Jesus. Okay? And Jesus is the perfect example of love and good works. Okay? This is a reference going towards Christ likeness. Love and good works remind us that the Christian life is about, is about both internal and external things. It is about feeling things and doing things. And we're to stir up both of these. Okay. I want to give you just a real quick specific way that I believe the Lord has showed me uh, from His Word how to do this. I believe that the most powerful way that you can stir up your brothers and sisters in Jesus to love and good works is that you take the gospel of Jesus Christ and you bring it to bear on their life. Okay. Here's what I mean by that. How do you stir them up? And what I'm saying is you, you preach the gospel to them. You talk about Jesus. Here we go. In 1 John 4.19, how do you stir them up to love? 1 John 4.19 says we love because He first loved us. So I'm just trying to be real simple here. But if I want to stir up love, I know from the Word of God is the only way they're going to love if they know that God loved them first. And the only way they're going to know that is through the gospel. Okay, So I want to bring the gospel to bear on my brothers and sisters. Think about this in Titus chapter 3 verse 8. We have this phrase. The, the saying is trustworthy and I want you in, to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to, uh, to devote themselves to good works. How do you stir somebody up to good works? This verse says there is a saying that's trustworthy. That if you insist on, it will cause believers to devote themselves to good works any idea of what that saying is? If you go back in Titus chapter 3, you'll know exactly what that saying is. That saying is the gospel. Okay? That if we insist on these things, if we insist and we drive in and we bring the gospel to bear on our brothers and sisters, it stirs us up to love and good works and ultimately to be like Christ. Uh, verse 25. And this, this cla- closing thought, it really hangs off the last command, that third command. It says this, "...not neglecting to meet together." as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This command that we have here is a command not to, not to neglect meeting together. Okay? And I want to submit to you that this one also was given for a reason. Okay? This is not a shotgun approach. Apparently, some, some people in Hebrews had gotten in a bad habit, as is the habit of some, of neglecting uh, the gathering the meeting together okay? and we see this uh, why is this such a big deal the next phrase should help you out encouraging one another okay why is neglecting to meet together such a big deal and I'm saying this because of the next phrase encouraging one another okay God has set up the Christian life in such a way that you are part of a body you are not isolated and autonomous this is God's work he placed you in the midst of a body okay and you need the body. God has set it up that way. God has also set up the Christian life where you need, as a believer, constant encouragement. Okay? That encourage is not your job to fix everybody in the body. It says encourage one another. It's this mutual. There's mutual encouragement. God set it up that way. You need these things. And this is why meeting together is important. And this is why forsaking to meet together is a big deal because you need encouragement. We have an urgent need for encouragement. I'll draw you to that last phrase. Why? Because the day of the Lord is drawing near. The day of the Lord is drawing near. And that is not a fearful day for Christians. Okay? So I don't mean to say that, but what I do mean is it it is a reminder that we only have a little bit of time on this planet to glorify Jesus. And you need to be stirred up. You need to be encouraged. You need to be stirred up to lay your life down to live for Jesus. Okay? Okay? And that happens as we meet together. As we, not, as we don't forsake to meet together. Because the day of the Lord is drawn near. Alright, I want to walk into some application as we finish up. And I told you, uh, let's, let's just talk about this. How does this text apply to unbelievers? How does this text apply to unbelievers? It is a terryf- it, this is a terrifying reminder that unbelievers are shut out of God's presence. Listen to Isaiah 59 verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So apart from Christ, we have no access. Apart from Christ, we are barred from the holy presence of God. And we are separated and He will have none of us. In John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so this this passage applies to unbelievers in this way, that they are shut out of the presence of God, and the only way that they will ever come to the Father is through the Son, through Jesus. All right, how does this text relate to believers? And more specifically, I want to ask, how does this text relate to church members here at Grace Community Church? How can we take this text and walk into applying these things uh, as what does this mean to be a member of Grace Community Church. And I'm telling you that it, that it helps us understand our responsibilities. Here's what I mean. Many of you have asked me and Ryan over and over, what can I do? How can I help? How can I serve? Okay? And there's, there's such a pure heart in that, that you want to serve the church. You want to know what you can do. Okay? But here's what I think. I think that there's not always a lot of clarity in the how or the what of, and, and, and people have really good motives, but you don't know exactly what you need to be doing. And what I'm saying it, this passage gives us a lot of clarity of exactly what you need to be doing. Okay, What do you need to be doing here? What is your responsibility as a member of this church? First and foremost, it reminds us that the most important thing for you to be doing in your entire life is to be cultivating a deep, passionate, personal relationship with a person of Jesus Christ. Draw near to God. This is the commandment. This is the main thrust. Cultivating an intimate walk with the Lord is the most important way you can serve this church. It is the most important gift you can give this body is a close relationship with Jesus Christ. Draw near to the Lord. Don't neglect this. Okay, we're going to camp here for a minute. Don't neglect this and immediately run into your mind to more practical things. Yeah, yeah, I know that, but what can I do? What can I do? Don't do that. This is the most important thing that you can do. Closeness with Jesus. This touches everything else in your life. So I want to ask you this. How is this going for you? Okay, you get up and you wake up and you live your life. How is closeness with Christ going with you? How is drawing near to Jesus going with you? I ask you this, I want everybody here to honestly assess your intimacy with the Lord. How's it going? Do you walk closely with the living God? How conscious are you of His presence? Is God a living reality to you or an idea that you just talk about? Okay? How is closeness with Jesus? Think about this. Psalm 27, verse 8 says this. How is this type of thing going in your life? Psalm 27, verse 8. You have said, Seek my face. This is a command from God. Seek my face. And then that verse finishes My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. How's that going in your life? Seeking the face of God. Is this your daily experience? Are you living far beneath what Christ has provided for you? Or is this your daily experience? Do not brush past this and ignore it. Draw near to God. Do not let your heart get so full of other things that you don't even think about God. Cultivate a deep, passionate, personal relationship with Jesus. I'm to just give you one practical thing on that. This is going to cost you some time. You need daily times alone in the presence of God to cultivate closeness with Christ. Only when you have consistent daily times in His presence can you live Coram Deo, life before the face of God. Okay. So do you have times every day where you draw near, where you're before the King, where you're seeking the face of God? Do you honor Jesus in this way? Okay. You have the highest obligation to draw near based on this access that we have been provided. Okay, now you say, I understand. I understand that's the main thrust of the passage and that's the main way I can help the church. Okay, but now what can I do? Here's some other things. You can come. You can come. When we gather, you can come. Okay, now that might sound simple, but let's, let's talk about that. I know it seems simple. But the text says not neglecting to meet together. And I want to remind you that the writer gave that command for a reason. And I want to plead with you here, some of you here, to break bad habits. Okay? And I call them habits because that's what the text, as is the habit of some. Okay? So some of you here, maybe unintentionally, there's a lot of deception involved with these things. And you don't necessarily mean for it to be like this, but all of a sudden, you're not around Christians. And you're not drawn to meeting together with Christians. And then all of a sudden you've got a really bad habit of forsaking to meet together. Okay? And I want to bring the word of God to bear on that bad habit. Don't do that. Do not do that. Do not forsake meeting with Christians. Okay? You need fellowship. At this church, we have been very sensitive to not overschedule you with things. Just program after program after gathering after gathering. We've been very sensitive to that. Okay? We want to make as much margin in your life as possible to make disciples and to pursue God. Okay? We do not want to schedule, your, schedule you from one end to the next and you have no margin in your life. And so the way that rolls here is we gather on Sundays, we gather in the mornings, and then we try to get everybody in this church involved with at least one small, Bible, small group Bible study during the week. And I would encourage you, don't forsake those things. Come to them. That's a way that you can help this church. That's the way that you can serve this church, is that you're there. okay? And only if you're there can you encourage one another. And that's where I want to land at the, at the, as my last point. What can I do? What can I do as a member of the church? You can encourage one another. okay? Now, the way this usually works, uh, and I'm not saying that this is all wrong, but the way this usually works is, is uh, churches start stacking up programs from the floor to the ceiling of things that you can do. okay. But the Word of God doesn't command us to do programs. It commands us to encourage one another. And programs are fine and good as long as the commandment gets obeyed, right? But the point is that the commandment gets obeyed. okay. And what we've seen is we want to simplify this as simple as possible. To provide as much margin in your life as a church member that you have all the time that you need to encourage one another. To gather up and to encourage one another. So I want to give you a practical thought. What can you do as a member of this church? Okay, There's this little thing that we send out uh, usually when everybody joins called a members list. Okay, Here's something practical that you can do. Please don't brush past this. You think about if a church actually grabs a hold to these things. Here's something that you can do. You can take that members list. And you can begin to call out to God on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Jesus in this church. And then you can take that members list in your prayer time and you can consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And you can spend a lot of time thinking of, not about yourself but about other people in this body. And you say, Lord Jesus, please help me. Please help me to give them a word in season. Something that it brings encouragement. Something that brings your gospel to bear in their life. And you can take that members list. And your heart behind it can be, when I go to the gathering, I want to encourage. I want to receive encouragement, and I want to encourage. When I go to the small group Bible study, I want to receive encouragement, and I want to encourage. I want to gather up with some people on this list that I don't know real well. And guess what I want to do when I get them, get, meet up with them? I want to encourage them, and I want to receive encouragement. Encourage one another. Okay? So what can you do as a member of this church? You take that list, and you encourage one another. In a million and a hundred ways okay, that you can do that. Uh, one, one more practical thing that I want to throw out there is that there's this idea of hospitality in the New Testament. Okay? And what I want to encourage you to do is to use your home as a place to encourage other people in this body. And pick a night, maybe it's once a week, maybe it's more than that, that you have people in your home and you know what you're going to do when you get them there? You're going to encourage them towards love and good works. Okay? And these are the things that we can do as members of Jesus' body. Okay, to accomplish His purpose. Okay, so these are things that we can do. And I want to close by pointing you to the main thrust of this passage again. The best way to have something encouraging to share is this. Is to draw near to God. To cultivate a deep, passionate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't got that? You're not going to have a lot of encouraging things to share. That is the best way for you to benefit this body. Okay, to draw near to God. I'm going to pray for us. I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, we exalt Your name, Lord. God, we thank You so much for Your gracious gifts that You've accomplished for us, Lord. God, we ask for great faith that You would make us a people of great faith, Lord, that we would take Your gifts that You've given us, Lord, and that we would believe You, that we would believe Your Word, and they would become the daily experience of our life. God, I cry out to You, Lord, that You would stir up our affections for Jesus. That our love for You, God, would abound more and more and more and more. And we pray these things in Your name. Amen.